Russian logistics, and we're really happy to have somebody who started this conversation going for thousands of people. Trent Talenko is a former staff specialist with the U.S. Defense Department and a former U.S. Army vehicle auditor, and he joins us now. Trent, it's great to have you because I, as I say, like tens of thousands of other people, saw a, a Twitter thread that, that you put up early uh, in the in the first week or two of the uh, of the war, you shared photos that you had found on Twitter about your experience working on army vehicles, but more important uh, about those bogged down tank tanks trucks. We're looking at some of them now. Uh, that may have been hit as well. But I'm just I'm just wondering well, about what did you see? All right, those two photos you saw were were uh, pictures of U.S. Army FMTV trucks that were sent back to Sealy, Texas after being hit by IEDs. It is because I was there when those trucks were coming in that I could recognize what was going on with the Russian vehicles in Ukraine. And when it came to tires, I spent 10 years auditing uh, preventive maintenance on trucks that the Army had purchased from the contractor hadn't been delivered yet. What that meant was that I could tell at a glance what was going on with the Russian tires. Most modern trucks have something called the central tire inflation system. It's basically a little electronic device that sends air out to the tires so you can go in mud and not get stuck. The problem with the system and with tires is it has to be exercised between once a week and once a month. And when we saw a $20 million Russian air defense vehicle stuck in the mud with its tire ripped apart, I understood immediately that if you're not maintaining a $20 million air defense vehicle, that, you know, just driving it once a month, you're not going to be doing that with trucks. And what that means is when the Russians moved into Ukraine, vehicles that had not been moved in over a year and they started using the central tire inflation system, well, the sides of the tires get very brittle by being out in the sun and not being moved. So when you air them down and crunch down the tires, suddenly all that brittle rubber cracks and the tires flatten. And in the case of, of the uh, picture that I uh, used to start that thread, you see the tire literally rip apart in the mud. The thing about corruption that they taught me as a government auditor is it cannot be centralized. If you've got someone at the top saying, well, I'm not going to buy the 100,000 mile tire. I'm going to buy the 40,000 mile tire and pocket the difference and put that on Russian trucks. That means everyone else in the chain of command is doing similar things to pocket a little bit of that money. So if you saw something so basic on so expensive a vehicle, it told everyone that knew anything about motor pools and preventive maintenance, the Russians weren't doing it. And you can talk with some, go ahead. You, you actually, you, you, no, no, you, you sent us a bunch of images. Were those your images that we were airing just a minute ago? You could see them yes, on the screen, those, right? Those were, All right, let's, yes. let's air those again. Let's air those again and explain what we're looking at, why you sent those to us, because you wanted to make a point about these specific images. So go ahead. All right, that vehicle that you just saw was, uh, and the, the ones that you're seeing, are trucks that came back from Iraq in 2005 and 2006 to be rebuilt in Sealy, Texas. You're seeing the effect of blast of a mine, a big explosive planted on the side of the road, sending fragments through an unarmored vehicle. All right, right there, you're seeing a steel bed on a truck. 
Russian trucks don't use steel beds. They use wood. It's cheaper. We use it in commercial uh, uh, trucking all the time. The problem is in a real war, when a blast goes off, that wood shatters and there's flying fragments that will eviscerate troops that are anywhere near it. This is the difference between an army that fights a lot of wars and an army that does internal security. It's, they make those kind of make or buy decisions reflect the kind of missions that the army has. Right you know, now, Trent, Russia's. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I thank you very much. You're, you're, you're describing for us exactly what I, what I think so many people find so interesting about your contributions on this subject. That you know, there's the old uh, there's the old line: for the want of a nail, the horse was lost. Right, and it goes all the yeah. way down to the. The one of the vanilla because the kingdom, kingdom was lost. Yes. Right. And that's they're not rotating their tires. They're not maintaining them. And you're also talking about corruption, people skimming some of the procurement budget and putting it in their own pockets. So is the Russian force outdated or corrupt or inexperienced? How, how do you read what we're seeing that, that is so surprising to the world that thought this was a mighty army? And can they withstand Ukrainian assets? Well, it has a huge army. It is an army that is much bigger than Ukraine's. And when it comes to logistics, they focus on railways, not trucks, because railways are cheaper. You can move more. You can move more heavy equipment, longer distances. The Russians build their army around rails and trucks move everything from the rails to wherever they want to go. NATO experts identified this weakness before the war. The Russians can move about 90 miles or 145 kilometers before they start reaching the end of their truck line of supply. They're trying to push to Kiev, which is a little over 150 kilometers, and the Ukrainians flooded the areas around the roads. So they're stuck on the road, so Ukrainian drones can go out and whack trucks. In other places, the Ukrainians have been ambushing trucks and the heat from the vehicles are destroying pieces of the road. So even though the road is the same distance, because you've got roads filled with, with trucks with exploded ammunition all over the road, it's much deadlier and it takes much longer to go the same distance because you've got to very slowly go around those scenes of wrecked trucks that you see over and over again on social yes. media. And that has slowed them down. The, the old saying, well, what, what do they say? that? Uh, amateurs talk strategy, uh, professionals talk logistics. And, uh, and Trent Talenko, I think that's one of the things you've really brought to the discussion. That's at Trent Talenko on Twitter. And we thank you very much for your insight and help. We're going to keep following you, Trent. All right. Glad to help. And we were listening to ABC News YouTube channel, the title of the video Damage to Russian equipment raises questions about its military effectiveness. Dated March 18, 2022. In the notes it says, Former U.S. Army Vehicle Auditor Trent Telinko, T.E. L-E-N-K-O Trent is spelled T-R-E-N-T Trent Telenko analyzes poorly maintained Russian military trucks 
and explains what this means for the Russian army. And he was employed, before he retired, he was employed at DOD Department of Defense as an auditor. He's on Twitter at Trent Talenko and on Facebook. It's very, very interesting photographs, long, long feeds, a lot of people following him. They have uh, in-depth analysis on his level. He was an analyst in the Department of Defense. for listening. U.S. Daily News YouTube channel. A Russian brigade commander was killed by his own forces, according to a report by Politico on Friday. The report said Western officials said the commander was killed as another indication of the simmering discontent among Russian forces stationed in and around Ukraine, and was run over by an armored vehicle, and was seriously injured as a result. Later died of his wounds. The commander is reported to be part of the 37th Motor Rifle Brigade and is the seventh Russian general killed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began. A Western official also said that Lieutenant General Yakov Ryazantsev, the commander of the 49th Joint Armed Forces Army, also died Friday. Russia did not respond to Ukraine's claim about Ryazantsev's death. Last week, Russian Navy Commander Andrei Pali was killed in Mariupol, Governor Mikhail Razvazhyev said on messaging app Telegram. As with Rezantsev, Russia did not respond to a request for comment. 
Russia has suffered heavy losses of some of its top military personnel since entering the war with Ukraine on February 24. On Wednesday, Ukrainian officials reported that their army had killed 15 Russian commanders since the beginning of the conflict. It is stated that the Russian Defense Ministry has been contacted to confirm 15 names. But the information is still not fully confirmed by the Kremlin. These heavy losses of Russia show how unsuccessful their strategy in the region has been. Russia has also reportedly lost 561 main battle tanks and 115 warplanes to date. Most of these losses are too great to be compensated. troops throughout Ukraine at this emergency NATO meeting here in Brussels. And look, the response from Moscow has been chilling to stay the least. Uh, State TV, of course, controlled by the Kremlin, has declared that if NATO were to deploy a peacekeeping mission in Ukraine, that would be interpreted as an act of war by the Russian military and that they would have no option but to respond and respond with devastating effect, including potentially the use of nuclear weapons projecting unity from the stage of the world's most powerful alliance, NATO's 30 Western leaders sending a signal to Europe's Far East. We are united in condemning the Kremlin's unprovoked aggression. Aggression leaders here all agree will now be met with billions in additional military hardware. Still not enough, according to this frontline president. Volodymyr Zelensky's plea to NATO, not for membership, but rather a fraction of its firepower. Asking for fighter jets and 1% of its 20,000 tanks. We're very conscious of what he's asking for. At the moment, uh, we're looking at the, 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 the equipment that we think is uh, more immediately valuable is, uh, is uh, uh, missiles. Missiles that'll be ushered over the border with help from neighboring NATO battle groups. NATO has never never been more united than it is today. And it's compounding Vladimir Putin's isolation. More sanctions too on those funding his war machine and now a push to boot Russia from the G20. If Russia is provoked by NATO, if Russia is attacked by NATO, I don't know. So we are, we are nuclear power. 
Why not? We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. Convincing Western allies to condemn Russian aggression, the easy part for US President Joe Biden. The big question now is, can he translate that goodwill into political stamina over what's shaping up to be a long, grueling war? U.S. pledging a billion dollars in humanitarian aid, promising to house 100,000 refugees. People like Christina, a teacher from Odessa, happy for the help. I left my home, I left my work, and thank you for Europe that you accept us. But desperate to one day get back home. Help Ukraine! In Brussels, David Woywood, 7 News. passato più di un mese dall'inizio dell'invasione dell'Ucraina, dall'inizio di questa guerra crudele e insensata, che come ogni guerra rappresenta una sconfitta per tutti, per tutti noi. C'è bisogno di ripudiare la guerra, 
luogo de morte dove i padri e le madri seppelliscono i figli, dove gli uomini uccidono i loro fratelli senza averli nemmeno visti, dove i potenti decidono e i poveri muoiono. La guerra non devasta solo il presente, ma anche l'avvenire di una società. Ho letto che dall'inizio dell'aggressione all'Ucraina un bambino su due è stato sfolato dal paese. Questo vuol dire distruggere il futuro, provocare traumi drammatici nei più piccoli e innocenti tra di noi. Ecco la bestialità della guerra, atto barbaro e sacrilego. La guerra non può essere qualcosa di inevitabile. Non dobbiamo abitarci alla guerra. Dobbiamo invece convertire lo sdegno di, ogni, di oggi nell'impegno di domani. Perché se da questa vicenda usciremo come prima, saremo in qualche modo tutti colpevoli. Di fronte al pericolo di autodistruggersi, l'umanità comprenda che è giunto il momento di abolire la guerra, di cancellarla dalla storia dell'uomo prima che sia lei a cancellare l'uomo dalla storia. Prego per ogni responsabile politico di riflettere su questo, di impegnarsi su questo e guardando alla martoriata ucraina di capire come ogni giorno di guerra peggiora la situazione per tutti. Perciò rinnovo il mio appello. Basta! Ci si fermi, tacciano le armi, si tratti seriamente per la pace.
moments, President Biden will be delivering remarks from Poland after meeting with Ukrainian refugees. The White House says the president's speech will emphasize the stakes of the moment, the urgency of the challenge. And here is the president now. Let's listen in. President, they tell me you're over there somewhere. There you are. Thank you, Mr. President. Be not afraid. These are the first words at the first public address of the first Polish Pope after his election on October 1978. There were the words that would come to define Pope John Paul II. Words that would change the world. John Paul brought the message here to Warsaw in his first trip back home as Pope in June 1979. Trees 
decades, the Men's March Madness Tournament has received a much larger share of resources and investment than the Women's Tournament. That's starting to shift. Ariana Freeman wrote about the improvements in an article for CBSNews.com titled March Madness Banners at NCAA Women's Tournament are a welcome sign of change. And Ariana joins us now. She is a CBS Evening News associate producer who played college basketball at Louisville and Colorado. Ariana, we'll get to your piece in a second, but you played at Louisville where you made it to the Sweet 16 and then at Colorado. Just put into perspective for us how much the NCAA tournament means for these teams. Well, thanks for having me, Ali. The NCAA tournament means everything to these college basketball teams. It's what they work so hard for all season and what the coaches instill in them every single day in practice. Uh, for the powerhouses, the Kentuckys, the Louisvilles, the Alabamas, they're used to being in the tournament every season. And so for them, it's about continuing the legacy, showing people why they deserve the number one seed every single year. But for the underdogs, it's even more exciting. It's their chance to be able to take down a powerhouse that they normally never get their shot at. Um, and just for recruiting purposes as well, those underdogs want to show all these young high school players, like, look, we're in this. We can take down these powerhouses as well. So come join our team. Right. And the uh, NCAA is using the phrase March Madness on materials for the women's tournament for the first time this year. Ariana, you spoke with a, to a number of your former teammates who are now coaching. Tell us, why does that change mean so much to them? That's right. I, I spoke to uh, coaches from the University of Maryland, Virginia Tech, and Longwood, all who had bids in this year's game. And again, walking into the gym and seeing that March Madness logo plastered all across center court really touched their hearts and meant the absolute world. For years, the women's tournament has been simply promoted as the women's NCAA tournament. While on the big screen, they're looking at the men's getting these March Madness promos and everyone associates March Madness with this exciting time of the collegiate basketball year. So being able to see the March Madness logo on their swag bags, on their t-shirts, all across center court meant the world to them because it was a sign for change to come. And the name and the branding is one thing, but Ariana, what did the coaches tell you about the conditions this year compared to years past? Uh, some of the small minor changes that they um, brought up to me were the weight rooms. Uh, last year, after viral images showed that their weight rooms were farly less um, stacked compared to the men's, that was a huge change to see, being able to show that they can lift over 50 pounds. Um, also, little additions to their swag bag. Um, every tournament, every year, each team that makes it, they get these bags full of gear, whether it's T-shirts, little knick-knack things such as iPhones, cases or ear pods um, they got more of that as well so just getting more gear getting more love and better food were also uh, small changes that they noted as well better food that is important and as you mentioned last year videos showing the women's and men's training facilities at the tournament tournament went viral the women's equipment was virtually nothing compared to what the men got the ncaa issued an apology why was that apology so important 
You know, the apology was so important because, one, it was the NCAA finally recognizing the disparity publicly, being able to publicly say, look, we recognize that this is an issue. We see the women's tournament um, is a little bit underfunded compared to the men's. So them issuing an apology was huge. That was the first time the NCAA had come out and really recognized their wrongdoing um, with handling the women's tournament. But also, what also made me so happy to see was um, like Kalia Johnson told me uh, from Longwood University, who's an assistant coach, you know, we don't usually see what the men get. You know, we're in our own zone, focused on our own tournaments. So we don't see the swag bags or the extra gear, the food that they do provide on the men's side. So being able to see Oregon's forward Sedona Prince post that 40-second long viral video and then seeing all the love surround her and all of the coaches, Don Staley, Steph Curry from the men's side, the NBA players, Everyone really rallied around her and made this a focal point. And I think that's why we're seeing so much change this year. And Ariana, what changes still need to be made? Um, promotionally, I think was the one big thing that all of the women that I spoke to said that they would still like to see. There are so many key hidden moments um, that are made during the March Madness tournament on the women's side, whether it's a steal and a buzzer beater, um, whether it's a, a great block, you know, they would love to see more promotional on web and on social media. You know, let's promote the women's game. Let's show everyone these exciting moments, because I think a lot of people think that the women's game is boring or, or not as exciting as the men's. And I can tell you that that is just absolutely not true. Ariana Freeman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. 
people are taking uh, a thousand cases you've been o- over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a Some, something like that. Something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to, in to a st- case. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And the folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my, my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead up and saying things, tweeting things that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them and they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. You remember I was uncharted. Um, (laughs) But that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70 plus percent in many states of people are doing just like you did. But I'm I'm a Democratic senator. I, 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 I've never quoted from this very well-respected conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National uh, Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. I'll just read the first paragraph. I would oppose Judge Kachan, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. I addressed that in a separate post. For now, I want to discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this in this in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children to a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children. I I, I mean, this is a a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year. You were put on a court that I'm told is the, considered like the second most powerful court in our land. 
And you were passed with bipartisan support. Nobody brought it up then. Did they not do their homework? Were they lax? Did they make a mistake? I wonder, as they ask you the question, do you regret? I wonder if they regret that, that they didn't bring that out. No. Why? Because it was an allegation that is meritless to the point of demagoguery. You are, I don't mean this in any way, because if anybody called me average, I would, I would be upset. But you are a, a mainstream judge. Your sentencing, I've looked at the data, falls in the mainstream on everything from child sexual assault to all the other issues that people are trying to bring up. Some of these things are being cast at you that you called George Bush a war criminal. Come on, that is painful. Especially because, as you said, the brief change, these are names that you have to put in. And we're talking about a real issue that goes to the core of our values, torture. Barack Obama was named once he, once Bush left office. There is an absurdity to this that is, it, it is almost comical if it was not so dangerous. Because the next time a judge comes before us on the right or the left that has a body of work like you do, gosh, one of the, uh, some performance artists on our side could pull out one of the cases where they were below the sentencing guidelines, say, for example, it was on something like as horrific as rape that we all agree is horrific, and they can suddenly put themselves as the defense. How dare we put someone who's soft on crime? Well, are you soft on crime? God bless America. I got this great text. I've become really good friends with the folks at the FOP for my negotiations. And this was my favorite text. You all got to get this. I think my brother Kennedy might get a kick out of this. He goes, things that are uncountable, stars in the sky, grains of sand on the beach, and the number of times Democrats will mention that the FOP endorsed Judge Jackson in this hearing. <laughs> but let me mention it again. <laughs> Just in case my people say you're rough on crime, folks, really want to try to make that stick. You were endorsed by the largest organization of rank-and-file police officers. You were endorsed by the bosses, the largest organization of chiefs of police. And, and you were endorsed by Noble, who I hope people find out more about that organization. You got uncles that are officers. You got a brother, not just an officer, who went to serve after 9-11. Your family's not soft on terrorism. He went out there to capture and kill and defend this country from terrorists. I, I, I actually sit back here and finding this astonishing, but then I, I do my homework. <laughs> I love that my colleague brought up Constance Baker Motley. You know, when, when, when she was getting to the floor of the Senate, they were trying to stop her with outrageous accusations. You know what the accusation was back then? She was a communist. <laughs> dragging up stories, trying to throw anything that they might stick. But this is what you and I know. Any one of us senators could yell as loud as we want that Venus can't return a serve. We could yell as loud as we want that Beyonce can't sing. We could yell as much as we want that astronaut Mae Jamison didn't go all that high. But you know what? They got nothing to prove. As it says in the Bible, let the work I've done speak for me. Well, you have spoken. You started speaking as a little girl, watching that man right there 
try to raise a family and study law while your mama supported everybody. You spoke in high school when you started distinguishing yourself. And you know what you said when they told you you couldn't go to Harvard? Watch me. I went to law school. I didn't serve on the law review. You did. I didn't clerk at every level of the federal court. You clerked for a Supreme Court justice, one widely respected on both sides, which really shaped you. You left there and, and, and you went to private practice. And you know what you found? This is what you told me. That you had those tough choices that working moms have to make, the demands of a private law firm, raising your kids. It, it just didn't add up. You went before the Senate three times in a bipartisan manner. God bless America. We don't do that much stuff bipartisan around here. <laughs> you went to become a public defender because you wanted to understand all aspects of the law. Who does that? We live in a society that's very materialistic sometimes, very, very consumeristic. You went to, do people become public defenders for the money? <laughs> no. Your family and you speak to service, service, service. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I have, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning. And I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrible because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> and this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think because I'm sitting so close to you. And tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? You didn't get here because of some dark money groups? You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did but backwards in heels. And, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not going to let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here. But at night, when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices. The guy comes up to me, all he wants to say, I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here. But he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him. And he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given a speech, good of a speech. But talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced. And you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues, and I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala, and we have a knowing glance which we've had for years when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means, what it means. And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're you're, you're an intellect, you love books, but for me, I'm sorry. I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to, be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago. It was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. And what were the words of your heroes and mine? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk. You and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish, you may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm going to show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into mere slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America, but they were going to build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm going to make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans from Stonewall, women to Seneca. 
hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them and how they were critical for us defying gravity. All of these people loved America. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking. But you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through. Five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not going to stop. They're going to accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. (laughs) But don't worry, my sister. Don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Harry Tubman. It's one of my heroes because the more I read about this person, the more, I mean, she was viciously beaten. Her whole life, she used to fall into spells, cracked skull. She faced starvation, chased by dogs. And when she got to freedom, what did she do? Did she rest? No, she went back. Again and again and again. The star was, the sky was full of stars. But she found one that was a harbinger of hope. For better days, not just for her and those people that were enslaved, but a a harbinger of hope for this country. And she never gave up on America. She fought in the, led troops in the Civil War. She was involved in the suffrage movement. And as I came back from my run, after being mere assaulted by by someone on the street, I thought about her. And how she looked up. She kept looking up. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped looking up. And that star, it was a harbinger of hope. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens... And you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land. I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you.
The more you pray, the less you will panic. First of all, Senator, thank you for that. Uh, as I witnessed yesterday, and certainly want to say to Congressional Black Caucus member Senator Cory Booker, thank you yesterday. Uh, it was emotional. It was heartfelt. But it also spoke not only to black America, but to America, of how valuable this will be. Because what we will see when she is confirmed is what America looks like. We are no longer looking at where we were 56, 65 years ago, but yet we're still fighting for the same thing. So I say to little girls, and especially little black girls, it will be important for them to see that they could do what her best friend said of her when they were 12 and 14 years old. I think it builds hope for America. And we know that all too often as elected officials and wanting to get more people who are representative of this wonderful America that we live in. And that includes making the change and having the courage as senators to confirm a black woman, not because she's black, and this is what I want you to hear loud and clear, but because she is qualified more qualified than most we have seen in this room. And that's not just based on my opinion or my thought, but it is based on facts. It is based on when you look through the 600-some opinions, when you look through the 12,000 pages that were sent here on what she did on the United States Sentencing Commission, the 70-some thousand pages that came from the Obama library, when you look at what all the fact-finding checkers have said about her record, I say look to each of us, and this is why it is important to me. There is not a perfect person in this room. Yesterday, a minority senator said he did not agree with everything that his colleagues were saying. So I think you can look at anything or any person and find something that you want to find fault with. <laughs> but in this case, there are so many things that she has just been impeccable on her reverence for the rule of law, for her impeccable decision making. She is not perfect, but she is amazing. And that's what I want America to know. And I just want to end with this because I am also chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. And I want you to know while we are very diverse, our power is our unity. And we embrace and endorse her 100%. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Mr. Henderson, uh, you've been a leader on voting rights. Yesterday, uh, Judge Jackson talked about how the right to vote is a fundamental right in our democracy, as other nominees have said in the past. How can the court, in your view, particularly after what happened yesterday with the shadow docket case in Wisconsin, uh, work to reestablish public confidence in voting rights cases? Very quickly. 
Thank you for the question. Thank you also for your leadership in trying to protect democracy in your role as chair of the Rules Committee. Uh, I think the court has a very important role to play to preserve the right of all Americans uh, to the vote. We now see uh, democracy under attack in unprecedented ways. It certainly began with the January 6th insurrection, but it continues now at the state level in some uh, states uh, that are rolling back uh, protections that guarantee the right to vote. I am hopeful that the court will re-examine uh, the role it has taken with regard to the Voting Rights Act, which it has stripped of its essential powers at the Supreme Court level. And I think case a case has been made that there is a need for a new uh, structured uh, Voting Rights Act. Uh, and we hope, of course, that the Senate will ultimately come to accept that, uh, that requirement. Well, thank you. Mr. Chair, I'm not going to ask another question, but I did want to say to you, Mr. Rosenthal, uh, as someone who's kept my friends since middle school and high school, um, I especially enjoyed your testimony. And it reminded me of uh, when I asked one of Sonia Sotomayor's friends in a similar panel, who was a friend from middle school or high school, what she was like at that point. Maybe it was elementary school. And he said, judicious. And I thought, <laughs> so I enjoyed it very much. Thank you to all the witnesses. Thank you, Senator Klobuchar. Uh, we've been told by the Republican staff that the order, based on early bird rule on their side, is Senators Lee, Tillis, Blackburn, and Cruz. Uh, it appears, Senator Tillis, you're next up. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you all for being here. I, I listened to your testimony and watched it in my office. Uh, Mr. Rosenthal, you get married in a, in a, a couple of weeks? Yes, Senator. And also, uh, wish that your uh, father returns to good health. Thank you. Um, Captain Thomas, thank you for your law enforcement service and your service in Iraqi freedom. Um, Ms. McCollum, I, uh, I think this is the first time I've asked somebody questions who were actually a plaintiff in a Supreme Court case. Uh, it's an honor. Um, your testimony was uh, unbelievable. Before I leave today, I hope I can get one of your cards. I think oh, it reads sure. Hope, Health, and Love. <laughs> hope, um, Health, and Love. Um, so you were at this abortion clinic uh, as a counselor? Yes. Sidewalk counselor. Um, yesterday, I tried to make the distinction because I think some people were approaching that case as a pro-life or pro-choice case, and I was trying to make the point it was about uh, freedom of speech. You agree with that? I think you said that in your testimony. Sure. Now, in the amicus brief that was created, I think there were quotes in there. So these weren't words necessarily of those who created the amicus brief, but they were quotes from, I guess, um, the the plaintiffs in the in the original case that uh, you were mean, uh, in your face, uh, aggressive. And I think that the other quotes said that they even felt like they may be shot by you. Now, I know that was a couple of years ago, but that seems to be not characteristics of your behavior. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. What, yeah. what, can you, you were out there. You, yeah. you were not the only one. Were there others out there as life counselors or? Sure. Yeah. Were, were I, any of them mean, in your face, people that looked likely to shoot somebody? No, absolutely okay. not. So tell me a little bit about the bound. I'm sorry, I got to go quick because I'd like That's to hear okay. you talk. I'd like for you to repeat your opening statement. Um, but um, tell me about the the um, 
I was trying to get with Judge Jackson yesterday, who incidentally, Congresswoman, I think is eminently qualified. And, and I find it hard to believe that anybody on my side of the aisle would disagree with that. So this has more to do with the application of philosophy and uh, worldviews that could potentially influence. But I, I think you should make no mistake that uh, I agree with the ABA that she is highly qualified. I'm glad she, see she got that rating. But the, 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 uh, I'm trying to get an idea of what it was like on the ground. They were telling you, now one of the reasons you mentioned in your testimony that you may have to raise your voice is you were so far away from these young expectant mothers who may not have ever known that there was a choice of life that right. would fulfill them like uh, the mother who sent you the picture of her three-month-old baby um, yes. who's now in her teens. So I could understand if you're several feet away, you may have to raise your voice just to get their attention. Maybe that's what they meant by shouting it in your face. But... Um, with the Supreme Court striking, ultimately striking down the underlying Massachusetts law that was used as a basis um, for the complaint, um, were there people that were inside the envelope or, or maybe, I, I was trying to determine whether there were people that were escorting them in, which are basically expressing their free speech rights to choice. Were they there or was it just that, I mean, so were there people inside the buffer who were able to escort them in, and your argument was that you want to be there to give hold their hand, I think you said, never walk the journey alone. Um, is that an accurate portrayal of the facts on the ground, that you felt like you were not given a, a fair. fair access? Fair, that's true. Okay. Because, yes, you, you, you have it there, Senator. And, uh, yes, they are inside the buffer zone, and they're, also, they're talking to the mother-to-be, and That's what I thought. That's why I just we're wanted not, to get it right. Yes. And I think it's wonderful that you're here because uh, uh, you're, you're either an Oscar-winning uh, actor or <laughs> actress or the fact of the matter is that was a wholly unfair assertion yeah. of who you were. Um, just a quick question. I actually had one for Ms. Russell and Ms. Mascot. I'm not going to have time for both. Uh, so, Ms. Mascot, you talked about in your opening testimony the application and practice. Uh, I was thinking about a case that uh, Senator Cornyn brought up that had to do with the, uh, the, the, the uh, congressional direction. The plain word of the statute said that the, the removal, the, t the two, are you familiar with this? Are you talking about Make the Road, New yeah. York? Yeah, okay. and it was my understanding that Judge Jackson used as a basis for the uh, nationwide injunction that it did not comply with the APA, but that seems to be a tactic every once in a while, even though the plain letter of the text seemed like, um, and, and I think it's the reason why it was ultimately um, struck down by the D.C. Circuit, but uh, do you know of any other examples where Ms. Jackson may have uh, applied a similar logic uh, to a case? Well, in that particular case that you're speaking of, I think it was it was not, failing to rely on a provision that clearly limited the, the role of the courts and gave the discretion to make the decision to the um, acting uh, Department of Homeland Security secretary. I think in other opinions, um, what seems to be the case is that Judge Jackson is using a blend of sources, perhaps relying on legislative history or looking at intent or purpose more than other justices in the past who have expressed exclusive commitment to textualism, or maybe um, in applying canons of construction, perhaps moving 
beyond text sometimes in a way that might be different from other justices in the past, like Justice Scalia and Thomas. So of course, it's hard to predict based on district court rulings how a judge will rule, but there are these other instances like the one you mentioned or in the McGann case um, ahead, where the DC Circuit disagreed that suggests sorry, maybe- Sorry, in the interest of time, because yeah. I know we have a vote. Uh, I'd be very interested, thank you for that, uh, but I'd be very interested uh, as a follow-up if you have time over the next week to uh, just provide me a few specific examples if, if you can. You don't have to go to a great level of detail, but I would appreciate it. Uh, Mr. Chair, thank you. Ms. McCullen, do you have one of those cards? I'm going to get it on the way out. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Tillis. Uh, this isn't a coup. Uh, Senator Durbin has gone to vote, and uh, as is customary, one of the members of the committee takes his place. Uh, and I'm in the chair now, uh, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, and uh, very pleased to have my round of questioning while I am taking the chair for Senator Durbin. Uh, let me ask Dean Golubov, uh you have a, an extraordinary career yourself as a trailblazer, the first female dean at the University of Virginia. You had a distinguished clerkship with Justice Breyer, and before that, our good friend Guido Calabresi, one of the most distinguished judges and scholars in the United States at Yale Law School, where you went as well. Uh, a number of us on this panel have talked about the legitimacy crisis that the Supreme Court faces. Maybe the result of self-inflicted wounds, maybe the result of the times in which we live, but Justice Breyer's very thoughtful, deliberate, methodical approach, as was outlined by Judge Jackson as well, seems to be one of the hallmarks of his ability to bring the court together to overcome divides and disagreements, which in my view is very important at this point in the court's history. Would you agree? I would. And maybe you could elaborate as to why that is important for this court at this moment in its history. I think the court's authority, as Professor Mascott has been talking about, in the separation of powers really comes from its deliberative nature. It doesn't have the power of the sword. It doesn't have the power of the purse. What it has is uh, its reality and perception of being a neutral arbiter. Uh, and I think Ju Justice Breyer played a critical role in uh, enhancing and facilitating deliberation across all of the justices of the court. And I think everything that we know about Judge Jackson suggests she will do exactly the same thing. So the lack of trust and credibility is a threat to the court because it doesn't have armies or police forces or, as you say, the power of the purse. What it has is the trust and respect of the American people. Yes, that's something Justice Breyer talks about frequently in his writing and in his speaking, uh, is the fact that without the trust of the American people, the court simply can't do its job. The rule of law, the, the justices are committed to the rule of law, and the rule of law exists because the American people follow the rule of law and only do so when they have faith in the court. Um, let me ask, uh, and I think that point is very well said, uh, Congresswoman Beattie and uh, Mr. Henderson, uh, we are celebrating here a remarkable achievement. I've said it should have happened long ago. It's a leap into the present in the historic 
nomination by President Biden, the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court. But as much as we celebrate, as I pointed out yesterday, the decisions of the court in Shelby County and Burnovich that essentially have set us back, and especially in this area of voting rights, John Lewis was a great friend and hero to you and to me uh, on integration, backsliding as well. Maybe I can ask you to reflect on both of you, because you have such deep and broad experience and expertise in this area, about the ways that the Supreme Court has reversed some of the progress that was made in our own lifetime. Ms. Beattie, uh, Congresswoman Beattie, why don't you go first? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for uh, that question. And I am sure that Congressman John Lewis is looking down on us in a hopeful manner, especially as it relates to civil rights and voting rights. I think what we have to look at first, as was said by both of the professors, that the, the power is not in the policy or the Congress. So I think what this does with this confirmation would be it will be a hope for the people out there to help us as members of Congress and also as senators that we have to first do our job. And I think we have an obligation to help those justices by sending them policy, sending them voting rights legislation that they can then do within the rule of the law what the people are looking for. So I think that it starts here. And I think that question is so wonderful as I am sitting here as a member in the majority, with members in the majority and the minority, that the work starts with the House and the Senate. And so if that question would allow me to say that I am willing, because voting rights is the fundamental of everything that we talk about right now, whether it is the freedom of speech, whether it is working with our police, whether it is being the voice for those who are voiceless, let's start by saying we're going to give not only this justice, but all of the justices something that they can look at and rule on because we've sent them something that we're united. And I would ask, since I'm here today and with that question, that I ask my colleagues that we start with voting rights legislation, that we look at where we are with nullification. If we look at where we are in that case with preclearance, if we look at history, the voting rights are in with this, and you know this well. The Voting Rights Act has been reauthorized in a bipartisan way five times. Four Republican presidents reauthorized the Voting Rights wouldn't this be a wonderful time in this America to build a better America if this Senate and this Congress could come together and send our justices something that they could rule on that would be reflective of our democracy? Thank you. Mr. Anderson? Senator Blumenthal, thank you so much for the question. Let me say at the outset that I support completely the response of uh, uh, Congresswoman Beatty and believe her answer was full and complete. But let me also say that the right to vote is foundational of all other rights, as, as, uh, as Congresswoman Beatty alluded to. And so all the issues that we've discussed this morning, from free speech to 
uh, the rights of uh, individual victims in cases of police accountability or others are all uh, tied to the right to vote. The Supreme Court decision, beginning with the Shelby County decision in 2013, with the uh, uh, Abramovich decision of a couple of years ago, and recent interpretations of what the court has done by district court judges raise serious questions about the fidelity of the court uh, to the role that Congress has been designated to address discrimination under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. The fact that the court seems to have gone out of its way to find ways of eviscerating the protection of the Voting Rights Act has taken us back literally to the period that existed prior to 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was adopted. Some people consider that criticism to be hyperbolic, but the truth is the facts make clear that what is happening now to voters, particularly voters of color, younger voters, seniors, individuals with disabilities, are in fact violations of that fundamental right to vote. When we deny access uh, to the ballot, therein lies the problem. And so we have petitioned uh, Congress, specifically the Senate, uh, to enact new provisions that would help to protect the right to vote. We are disappointed that uh, earlier this year that effort was not undertaken uh, by the com with the complete bipartisan support of the Senate, but we hope that in the future that will happen. I remind you that 16 members, Republican members of the Senate who voted for the Voting Rights Act in 2006 in the reauthorization have so far been silent on this question of whether to move forward on the act. We hope they have a second opportunity to Thank do you. so. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks, Mr. Henderson. I'm going to call on Senator Blackburn. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate